pray that Christ is yours, that you have found him to be the treasure, the all-satisfying one for your life, and that you're content in him. You know, contentment is a strange thing to consider. When our lives are consumed with other hopes from this world, um, we, we tend to look for contentment in smaller, insignificant things, things that we can grasp and hold on to or go find on our own, on our own strength. William Wilberforce was such a man of that. He thought he possessed everything a man could want. He was born into an old family in Yorkshire, England in 1759. He grew up in great privilege, was given to ease and comfort, and had a wonderful wit. He did well in his undergraduate studies at Cambridge University, where he befriended William Pitt, who very soon became the Prime Minister of England. Almost immediately upon his graduation from Cambridge in 1781, Wilberforce was elected to Parliament. He was very fashionable and quickly became prominent in London because of his close friendships with many important people in society and political leaders. He soon defined what was the in crowd. And even in his early 20s, he held a position of considerable power and influence. And in the winter of 1784 and 1785, Wilberforce toured the south of France with several friends, among them Isaac Milner. On the trip, Wilberforce made frequent jibes at what he thought was the overheated piety of evangelical Christians. Unknown to the witty Wilberforce, his traveling companion Milner was such a Christian. At one point, Wilberforce referred to a prominent evangelical leader by saying he was a good man, but he carried things a bit too far. Milner, who had not yet argued with his young friend, responded, not a bit too far. He suggested that carefully reading the, new, the whole New Testament might cause Wilberforce to form a different estimate of this man. Wilberforce, a little surprised at his friend's forwardness, said he would do that. And he did. It's amazing what happens when we read the Bible. Over the next few weeks on that trip, God used the Bible in the plain reading of his word, to make William Wilberforce a new man. As he later told it, the Bible's message about God and man, sin and Christ's sacrifice, the forgiveness and new birth that can be ours through repentance and faith in Christ came alive to Wilberforce. He was born again, regenerated, as we say. He changed from just another nameless wit haunting the surroundings of London, always on the lookout for what benefited himself, to Wilberforce, the great liberator, a man who committed his life to ending slavery in Britain. It took him decades of work, but he eventually managed to push bills through Parliament, abolishing first the slave trade, then abolishing slavery, completing itself. His life had been transformed, and he finally found true commitment and contentment in Jesus Christ. Wilberforce became the champion of liberty only after God had freed his soul with the message of the Bible, with the good news of Jesus Christ. This morning I've titled my message, Partners in Contentment, and the contentment we're going to talk about can only be found in understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. 
So the question is, right off the bat, will you believe in Jesus Christ? Will you turn your life over to Him? I'm just going to cut to the chase right at the beginning because it means nothing. The rest of the 45 minutes that I will be up here will mean nothing to you. Will you trust Him for what He says about Himself in eternal life? Will you turn to Him in faith and trust in Him above all things? The gospel is of such importance that without it, you can't continue. You will never find contentment. You will never find peace. And so, can, so gaining contentment in this life is only found in trusting in God's Son, Jesus Christ, and what He's done for us on the cross and turning Him in faith. So we implore you to do that this morning. And here's the main idea for what we'll seek to find here in Philippians chapter 3. Contentment in our salvation will allow us to proclaim the Lord more than we complain of Him. Contentment in our salvation will allow us to proclaim the Lord more than we complain of Him. Contentment is the answer. Contentment, a state of happiness and satisfaction. And contentment in what? It's, it's in Jesus Christ. So Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, if you haven't turned there, turn now. He's going to continue his argument on how the members of the church in Philippi should act in relation to one another in the church family, how they're to relate to one another, and then how it will spill out in relating to the world around them. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 is where we're going to be this morning. So follow with me as I read. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, if you've always, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. So as we walk through these verses here this morning, we're going to see Paul urging these believers to have contentment in their salvation, which will then inform and direct their speech and their outward action in the church and as they live in the world. So two points as we walk through here, contentment in our salvation and contentment in our speech. Look again at verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The opening word, therefore, in, in verse 12, gives us the connection with the verses that preceded it. And, and yet the connection is not quite clear right away. Paul does, does begin the topic of Christian living way back in chapter 1 and verse 27, and interestingly, he talks about his presence and absence with them there as he does here in our passage this morning. But then Paul caps the discussion that we looked at last week in the gospel in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which, which we spent time thinking through. And so now Paul will address the obedience that should be present in the life of a believer because of this gospel, because of what Jesus Christ has done. 
And there's a method to his writing here. Having just rehearsed those gospel truths, Paul now can address the good works that eventually flow out of that salvation and the life from, home, from, from whom those that have trusted Jesus Christ. You, you might notice that he writes to them as a father writes to children. He says, he's calling them my beloved, my children, my loved ones, and the care and concern that Paul has for this church family. Paul is, is not writing as some drill surgeon, sergeant to, to, for them to get back in line, screaming at them. No, he, he's writing with, with care, with a patient parent trying to stimulate their children to, to love and good works. And in these first two verses is what we would call the theology of sanctification. That is a, a lifelong obedience of believers which leads to growth in Christlikeness, to become more like Jesus. This passage is not talking about earning our salvation, okay? When he says that, we'll dive into that. But remember, this is written to Christians who know they're saved. So when Paul says, work out your own salvation, he's not saying work for your salvation. It's not what he's communicating here. There's a big difference. The Bible tells us that God has worked for our salvation by his sovereign grace alone. Christ has done the work on the cross to bring us justification. There is nothing left for us to do in regard to attaining our salvation. Jesus Christ has done it all. So what is Paul saying here then? The expression to work out is an extreme form of the word to work or to put to work. Paul effectively says that, there sh that, that they should put their salvation into entirely effect and, and thoroughly put it into work. Paul repeatedly says that we're to obey the gospel in the epistles, which may surprise us. In Romans 10, 16, he writes about those who need to hear the, the good news, and he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. And we may think that the gospel is, is just something that only needs to be believed. But the Scriptures continue to point us to act as a result of the belief, oh, a working out of salvation. Paul, again, in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, says, those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Paul is teaching Christians who are already saved by God to live out their salvation in obedient good works, to put it in practice. And what Paul is teaching is easy to see, but hard to remember. As Christians, we already have our salvation. It's won for us on the cross. We are fully qualified citizens of heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so when he instructs us to work out our salvation, he's encouraging us to strive to be what God has already made us. Obedience is the expected outcome of salvation. So non-obedient professing Christians are simply that, professing Christians. They pro profess Christ but they don't possess Christ. Being a Christian does not mean we get to coast in life and do what we want. I'll just pause. I think the hardest group of people to struggle with this understanding is parents, right? Because we don't so desperately want our kids to be saved. But if, if God has not put your child in the family of God, parents, don't you dare do that for them. God is the one that saves. And, and as a Christian, it, it looks like, as a Christian, it looks like obedience to what God's Word says. Perfectly? No, we're never perfect. But this constant struggle against the world in, in obedience to what God's Word says, that's what it looks like to be a Christian. 
Jesus said, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Christians will produce good fruit through their obedience to, to God and His Word. And in the gospel hymn that we looked at last week of Christ, Jesus gives us the pattern of obedience and reverence. Jesus has shown us what humble, others-focused, God-glorifying obedience should look like in life. So does our lives look like Philippians 2, 6 through 8? When, when you sit and reflect on yourself, does, it, does that look like your life? Are we praying and striving for growth and humility and personal holiness and selfless service for the good of others? It's easy to show a spark of enthusiasm at, a, at an event or, or a retreat, and it's quite another thing to live faithfully and consistently when no one's watching through the mundane events of life. And that's what Paul is saying here, right? Obe- you obeyed when I was there. Praise the Lord. Now obey when I'm not there. Right? I, I sometimes feel this a little bit as a pastor when I walk into a room. Sometimes the conversation changes or the actions, you know. I mean, parents, we feel this when we walk into a room with kids, like, what are you doing? Nothing, nothing, not at all. It's <laughs> kind of what Paul is saying here, right? Yeah, you obeyed when I was in your presence. Do so more when I'm not, when I'm my absence. So how are we to work out our own salvation, Paul says, with fear and trembling? You might be shocked to read those words, fear and trembling. Paul isn't saying that we should cower in fear of a vengeful God hoping to somehow please Him. What he is saying is that we should work out our our own salvation with fear and trembling because of our awareness of, of the privilege and honor of having God Himself, our Creator, at work within us to will and to work for His own good pleasure. Simply put, as Christians, we should be living in awe of God. There should be a, a reverential fear, a, a holy concern of what God thinks, so that we, we come trembling before Him. And simultaneously are mindful of, of His grace and confident of our deliverance through sin, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we're accepted in God. And it's this, this balancing of both. And yet I wonder, if we're honest, if we are more fearful of what other humans think of us and how we act and what we say, more than what God thinks of what we think and say. Do we live with more fear and trembling of people than of God? I really believe that social media has hardwired our brains to care too much about what other people think of us. And how many likes and comments do we get? How many people have seen our pictures or our opinions online? You know, does dinner really happen unless it's on Instagram? You know, I, I would be foolish to say I have not thought this of myself and, and, and fleshed this out in my own life. And what happens is that our, our, the fear of the Lord is kind of pushed to the side and we become fearful what others think of our lives. Are we doing the right thing or acting the right way or living the, the life that we should live? And when we worry about it so much, it, then it dominates our actions and our, and our lives. Even good godly service for God become diluted. 
Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For us to be content in our salvation, we need to fear the Lord more than any other created thing on this planet. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it's how we're to live in this world. And fearing God and recognizing His sovereignty over, all, all, all over us allows us then to work for His honor and glory in all things. And furthermore, as Christians, we should, we should continue to remind ourselves and be conscious of the fact that God is always watching us. He, he, he's very um, concerned for His children, not in a way that He's just going to catch us and get us, but out of love and care for us. He never takes a break from paying attention to us. That should bring us calmness and, and, and contentment there, right? He's very much interested in how we live in this world. Friends, do you struggle to live in awe of God? Can I encourage you to just start on Sundays? Come prepared on Sunday morning gathered worship to be focused on God and, and your worship of Him. And, and how do you do that? I can talk about this for a long time, but Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. For many, usually younger, Sunday morning worship is a Sunday morning decision. Friends, you've already lost. Satan hates you and he wants you to sleep in. And so we, we have to make decisions beforehand. That's one of the reasons why we, we, we push and, and we talk about the preaching schedule um, is so that you know what's going to be preached so that you can spend time in God's Word before it's preached. One of the reasons why Len is leading that study on Saturday morning, men, is so that men can discuss God's Word before it's preached. And I found the encouragement from other men just spending time in that, that, that helps you come into worship to be in all of Him. And so you come prepared and asking God, begging God to use the Scriptures that are read and the prayers that are prayed and the songs that are sung to change your heart. And you come prepared on Sundays to be in all of God and His magnificent work on the cross. See, there should always be a sense of awe in the life of a Christian. That's what Paul, I believe, is saying here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Live in awe of God in all, in all things. And, and if you're struggling right now to, to live in awe of God, just think about the fact that He uses me to preach His Word. I mean, that should bring awe of Him, not of me. A rotten sinner saved by God's unmerited grace to bring God's Word to God's people that God would choose feeble men and women to understand the Bible and to give it to others. Friends, that should cause all of Him, not of us. And I think that's what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 6. Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. But my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so he can declare out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. That God would choose to use us to declare His glory. It should bring awe of us. And with this sense of awe of God, it, it should produce in us the obedience and direction for our lives. And Paul ends this little section in verse 13 by teaching us that God doesn't call us to obey, 
to follow him and then says, good luck. He doesn't do that. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Friends, God is at work in us as we work for him. Amen? D.A. Carson, in noting this significant truth, says this, God is not working merely to strengthen us in our willing and acting. No, Paul's language is stronger than that. God himself is working in us both to will and to act. He works in us at the level of our wills and at the level of our doing. We work because God works in us. And this makes complete sense if we're reading the Bible as a whole. God works in us that we might work out our salvation, our service for Him. Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him. As Christians, we have entered into this great relationship with God to accomplish His good pleasure, and He is working in and through us. We're not, we're not doing this on our own. It is God who works through us. So, friend, if you, do you, do you feel defeated, caught in sins that seem to be too overwhelming for you to overcome on your own? Then you need to remember and remind yourself that the power of God resides in you and that the Spirit of God leads you to an obedient response to salvation that you already have in Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're on the other side of the coin. Do you secretly catch yourself thinking that you're doing okay on your own? In fact, you're even thinking that God is really lucky to have you. You need to remember that God is the one who works in you. And any strength you have to obey comes from the outside, not from you. See, even as we prayerfully make plans and we put them in action to serve God, God is at work to ensure that that plan and and to do those things to achieve His perfect purpose. Friends, this should give us enormous confidence to get to work and to serve God for His glory, shouldn't it? We as Christians should respond to our salvation and to the tremendous supply of our God by relying on God's strength to give us power to do the works that please Him. Contentment in our salvation, satisfaction in Jesus Christ allows us to work for His glory. So that's the first point. Second is contentment in our speech. Paul has been encouraging the Christians that are members of this Philippian church to follow the Lord wholeheartedly, putting their salvation to work and knowing that God is the one who works for, our, for His own good pleasure in them. And, and if God is working in them, then there will be sanctification that's happening in their lives. And, and what is one major area where sanctification still is working through God's people? Listen to Numbers chapter 11. Listen as I read. Numbers 11, verses 1 through 3. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tabrah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. I remember reading this passage a few times when I was a youth pastor before we go on a long trip, somehow trying to help teenagers know to be quiet in the van. Sitting in a van with 15 grumpy teenagers for three hours is instant sanctification. (laughs) 
Why do I read this in Numbers 11? Paul tells us in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Not some things. All things. Why? Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul shoots straight now to the issues that affects every church. Our speech. Grumbling refers to this this kind of low tone, a voice behind the scenes talk in which someone secretly derides another person, expressing discontentment, muttering, complaining. Disputing signifies a tendency to debate, to take sides, often in the form of, of bickering or arguing. This is how Paul addresses how the church in, in Philippi can quickly apply the call to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling and stop grumbling. Paul would frequently bring parallels between the experiences of the people of God in the Old Testament and the life of the people of God in the church. And the language here in verse 15 is referenced in Deuteronomy 32. In your Bible, you probably have a reference there as a footnote. And there in Deuteronomy 32 is Moses speaking his last words to the people and his fears for them after he would die. And he uses the language that we see in verse 15. But, but in verse 14, I believe Paul is using the situation that I just read in Numbers chapter 11, God's response to his people's complaining. And I only read the, the first part. The rest of the chapter gets interesting. I'm going to read that. Verse 4, Numbers 11, verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions and garlic cooked over a fire. Oh, that's good, isn't it? But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Just the manna. And then he describes it. The manna was like corridor seed, and its appearance like that of Beldum. And the people went about and gathered it. I'll get there. Gathered it and ground it in hand mills and beat it into mortars and boiled it into pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp at night, the manna fell with it. These people are stuck on stupid. Manna fell from heaven. Some of you kids think that food magically appears in the refrigerator. And what do they do? At the beginning of the chapter, we read, what did did they do? They complained. And God had enough. And people died. They they weren't burnt and got a Band-Aid. They were dead. God killed them because of complaining. And what were their complaints? Food. 
They were blind to what God was doing for them and how God had protected them and supplied for them. And, and, and furthermore, they're romanticizing the past. Yeah, all right? I mean, I, I read that. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Really? It cost nothing? They were slaves, weren't they? You know, they tend to minimize the, the earlier discomforts when new suffering is, is here. And they're selective in their memory of how God has provided for them. And these people are, are, are so strange to us, right? I mean, they're so different than us. You know, and, then, and their grumbling increased. It grew. Friends, sin is contagious. Righteousness is not. And before long, a complaining spirit was spreading throughout the camp. And this doesn't happen, right? It's done, right? We've moved past this. These are simple people. We've matured. We're advanced people. We wouldn't dare complain about things like food. Instead, we complain of things about traffic. As we sit in our fully automatic car, driving to a job or a school in one of the most advanced nations in the world, where we will either receive a paycheck that will most likely cover every single need we have in our life, or we will receive an education top-notch that will allow us to then earn a paycheck to supply all that we need. So why would Paul mention the temptation to grumble to a church family? Aren't we better than the general population? Friends, we are so much in need of God's grace. And one of the obvious reasons why I think he mentions it to the church is because Christian perseverance isn't easy. For us to continue to pursue holiness and to share our resources with one another and to serve people that we don't get along with and we don't share the same opinion with, and to share the gospel as part of the Christian life, it can, can, can tempt us then to, to complain and to murmur to one another or about one another. And not to mention all the external pressures that we face in this world, the opposition to the Christian message, the opposition to the Christian lifestyle, to being obedient to God in all things. You know, Paul's going to get that in chapter 3 for them. And, and, and because of all that, we, we respond with grumbling and disputing. And, and it was interesting to me as I, as I looked deeper and, and read another uh, reference point that the Greek word for disputing, it can reference to an inner disputing, a debating with yourself. In fact, 50% of the time that this Greek word is used in the New Testament, it talks about the inner disputing in our thoughts. It's the word we get for dialogue. And so our disputing isn't always verbal, but this inner dialogue with ourselves. And so I don't believe, I could be wrong, but I don't believe Paul is referencing the disputing with others, with spouse and circumstances, other church members. No, I think he's talking about internal arguments with ourselves. The, the internal arguments where I say I'm worthless. I keep messing up. Why did I say that? Why did I react that way? Why does it seem like no one likes me? It doesn't seem like I'm going anywhere. I, I never get things right. You know, the internal dialogue that just goes and goes and goes in our head. We, we do that, right? The inner dialogue, the beating ourselves down. 
And if we're not lining up all the negative things about ourselves, sometimes we're focusing on the other side of the coin. And we say things like, man, I'm pretty awesome. I I just killed that test. I don't know why more people don't listen to me. I I can't understand why that that person mistrusts me. Why can't they just trust me? Why can't they just let me do what I do? I'm literally the smartest person. My argument is flawless. I've got answers. Why don't more people just trust me and allow me to do what I want to do? Or the inner dialogue that produces anxiety and depression that we just flare up and we just stop. We don't do anything. You sit there and you wonder, Jeff, you're out to lunch. I don't have any of those inner dialogues. Friends, Jesus disagrees with you. You remember the story in the Gospels of the paralyzed man and his friends couldn't get him in to see Jesus? And, and they, they couldn't get him through the doorway. And what do they do? They, they, they cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down. And do you remember what Jesus says to the man? Paralyzed, right? Everyone sees the obvious reason. And what did Jesus say to him? Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees who are there in the room listening to Jesus don't speak a word. And Jesus turns to them and says something shocking. Why do you dialogue in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And, and why did Jesus say that? Luke tells us, Jesus perceived their thoughts, their inner dialogue, and he corrects their bad understanding of who he is and why he came. They couldn't keep their inner dialogue to themselves. Jesus could hear all of their thoughts, and Jesus addresses those thoughts, those sinful thoughts. And I think that's what Paul is addressing here. Do you want to know what brings about vocal grumbling in our lives? an inner dialogue of mistrust and anger and anxiety and lack of fear of God. Our grumbling and complaining is ultimately against God. Friends, if you believe in the theology of the sovereignty of God, then every moment of grumbling towards others, towards the church, towards how life is going, is ultimately grumbling against God. God chose to put that person in your life. He chose to put that situation that you're facing there. And we need to be reminded of this. Our grumbling, our inner dialogue against things is deeply theological. It is clear evidence of dissatisfaction with the plan of God in our life. Complaining is that spiritual gauge for your life. It's like those warning lights on your dashboard for your life. When our hearts and our mouths are full of complaints, that means there's something terribly wrong in our heart. Friends, that's why we need the church, other Christians in our lives. 
not just on Sunday, but during the week, involved in our life, to possibly, with trepidation and love and grace, point out to us when we're full of complaints. Maybe you need to spend some time this week and, and, and think through what are the circumstances that I'm more prone to grumble and argue. Maybe spend some time this afternoon considering those situations in life where the temptation is strong to grumble. And then ask the Spirit to help you to put that to death. And to come away from this time in God's Word resolved to live in contentment in our speech with Him. John Newton has a helpful illustration, at least I found it helpful, of the folly of complaining in the life of a Christian. He writes, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which caused him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands, blubbering about all the remaining mile, yelling, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. Friends, listen, we are like that man. We have a little bit to go before we reach glory. And when we pause and we spend our lives complaining and grumbling, we're like that. About to enter the most fabulous thing possible, and we're complaining about our carriage. Soon, Paul gets this, soon we'll be with Christ. And so the encouragement is we shouldn't get caught up with grumbling, with complaining and arguing. And so why is it important? Why is it important? We think we've talked about that, but Paul's not done. Verse 15, why should we not complain and grumble that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world? What happens if we allow grumbling and complaining to creep in and to be dominated in our church family? Our light will be dimmed and we'll be full of blame, and we won't be distinct from the world any longer. When our speech is filled with complaining, we're losing our distinctiveness in this world. Everyone else out in the world complains about how hard life is, but as Christians, we're to be different than the world. We're to be unique because we have a hope that's outside of this world. Paul said we should be blameless and innocent when it comes to complaints. Blameless means that there's nothing worthy of censure. See, the world is crooked and twisted up. They don't have the security that we do in Jesus Christ. So complaining and disputing, that, that seems pretty normal and natural. But as Christians, we, we should stand in contrast. So much so that Paul says we, we are stars whom you shine as lights in the world. Right? Have, you ever, have you ever been out in the country outside of the lights and stared up into a dark sky and see stars that are so far away and they fill the sky? He's comparing us to that, that we shine in that way. And so it does us good to remember that, that as the bride of Christ, the church, we must persevere in this fallen world and we must live out our lives in Christ as we're to live in this world. 
There must be a distinctiveness that the world should perceive that we're different, that there's a different way, a better way, a way that leads to salvation as they watch our lives, as they listen to our speech. I'm sure Paul must have had Jesus' words ringing in his mind where he taught in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. The city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, your worked out salvation, and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. People are watching us. If, if we say anything to them about us following Jesus, they're watching us and they're listening to us and they're observing and how we respond to the things that have been dealt to us. And so are we standing out as bright lights that shine on the Lord and His goodness to us? Is our speech different than that of the world? Is our response to hardship different than our unbelieving neighbors and coworkers? See, Paul wants this church to be a proclaiming church and not a complaining church. I think we want the same for us. And how do we do that? Look at verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. So then the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in, la- run in vain or labor in vain. See, when we have the foretaste of Christ's rule in this present age, we still look forward to that future rule of Christ when he comes to establish his everlasting rule over all creation. And on that day, Paul will be proud. And so he boasts in the faithfulness of the Lord in his own life and his life of the church. And then he, he, he states it there in verse 17, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Even if I, I, I'm given up, and he will be, as we read. Paul gives thanks that his life and service are poured out for the Christians in this church. And Paul compares his service to that of, of an Old Testament sacrifice to be poured out as a drink offering. It's as, a, as though Paul is, is being drained of himself for the sake of others and is pouring out his life as an offering for those that he serves as unto the Lord. Giving up yourself for the sake of others is the service that God calls all of us as Christians to. And what a beautiful picture that is for us, that it should be for us as a church. Well, I need to conclude in these, there's been a lot in these short verses. I'm sure I haven't covered everything, but we learn so much on what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ and to serve him as it, and we do that as a church family. The Christian life flows out of God's own spirit working through us and in us. And we're not passive in this life either. No, we're active with this reverent all of God, he says. And we perform good works that are in step with the gospel, which is an amazing gift to us. Even the way in which we speak and think is a window into our souls. And the Christian life requires that we watch our thoughts and and how they spill out into our, our mouths. And for the sake of the unity and purity of the church, we must keep a tight rein on our words. 
And see, the way to avoid grumbling and complaining in the church is to remember that all of our life lived out in sacrificial service is only a response of the gratitude of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. See, the opposite of grumbling is contentment. This whole passage is really talking about contentment. Contentment in the Christian life. Contentment in our salvation and what God has done for us. Paul will say it more concretely and clearly in Philippians 4. He says in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, but I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He has learned contentment. It didn't just come naturally to Paul. He learned it. He's learned not to grumble and to be content. And that's the goal for us as Christians, to learn contentment. Are you learning contentment? Are you putting to death grumbling in the inner dialogue of doubt of God, anger towards others? Do you know how we do this in the Christian life? It's that phrase that we briefly mentioned there in verse 16. Look there. Paul says, whoops. Paul says, holding fast to the word of life. That's how we live as lights shining in this world. Holding fast to the word of life. And what is the word of life? It's, it's Christ. It's the gospel. It's Jesus who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how we live lives that are not full of complaints and grumbling. We hold fast to the word of life. We're going to end our time singing. The Lord is my salvation. It says here, the grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea. And I'm safe on solid ground. The Lord is my salvation. Who is like the Lord our God, strong to save, faithful in love? My debt is paid and the victory won. The Lord is my salvation. Friends, that's the power in which we have to live this life and to live in contentment of Him is that we hold on to the word of life, the gospel in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this marvelous and timely and helpful passage here in Philippians. And we're desperate children who who need to be reminded of our salvation in you. God, I thank you for, for a church that proclaims the gospel regularly and for people who love you more than they love themselves. And we ask that you would bring about more growth in our, in our lives and our understanding of the gospel. May we rest in contentment in all that you have accomplished for us on the cross, that you are our salvation. And may we live out this gospel in our speech with others and with this inner dialogue with ourselves. May we trust in you for all things. And may you continue to give us grace when we struggle. Help us to leave this place for your honor and glory to serve you, not only in our our workplaces and our homes, but in the ministry that you've given us here. May we seek to serve you in those ways too. 
And we do it all for your honor and for your glory. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.